Welcome everyone to episode 88 of Ohio Unsolved, and welcome back from our week off. I'm your host Matthew, and today's episode is about the mysterious disappearance of Brian Schaefer from Ohio State University. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Brian Schaefer was a medical student at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. On the night of March 31, 2006, Brian went out with some friends to celebrate the beginning of spring break. Later, he was separated from them, and they assumed that he had just gone home. However, a security camera near the entrance to a Columbus bar recorded him briefly talking to two women just before 2 a.m. April 1st and then apparently re-entering the bar without any evidence of him leaving the area. Brian has not been seen or heard from since. The case has received national media attention. Brian's disappearance has been especially puzzling to investigators since there was no other publicly accessible entrance or exit to the bar at that time. The Columbus police have several theories about what happened. Some interest and suspicion has been directed at a friend of his who accompanied him to the bar that night, but he has refused to take polygraph tests regarding the incident. While foul play has been suspected, including the possible involvement of the purported smiley face killer, it has also been speculated that he might be alive and living somewhere else under a new identity. Brian grew up in Pickerington, Ohio, a suburb outside of Columbus, the oldest of two sons to Randy and Renee Schaefer. He graduated from the local high school in 1997 and went to Ohio State University for his undergraduate work. Six years later, he graduated with a degree in microbiology. Following that, Schaefer began studies at the OSU College of Medicine in 2004. During his second year there, in March of 2006, his mother died. Brian's friends say that although he appeared to be handling it well, her death was really hard for him. During his time at medical school, Brian had become romantically involved with another medical student, Alexis Wagner. She, along with their families and friends, believed that Brian would probably be proposing marriage to her later in 2006, 
most likely on a trip to Miami that the couple had planned for spring break at the beginning of April. Tropical locations such as Miami were attractive to Brian. He liked the relaxed lifestyles. He told his friends that despite his decision to pursue a medical career, his real ambition was to start a band playing music in the vein of Jimmy Buffett. On March 31st, a Friday, classes at OSU ended for spring break the next week. Schaefer and his father Randy celebrated the occasion by going out for a steak dinner together earlier that evening. Brian's father noted that he seemed exhausted from having pulled all-nighters earlier in the week, cramming for some of the important upcoming exams. He did not think Brian should go out with a friend, William Clint Florence, later that night as he planned to do, but did not express his reservations to his son. At 9 p.m., Brian met Florence at the Ugly Tuna Saloon, a bar in the South Campus Gateway Complex on High Street in Columbus. An hour later, Brian called Wagner, who would return to her home in Toledo to visit with her family before her and Brian were due to depart from Miami. Brian and Florence went bar hopping, visiting several other drinking establishments and working their way down the arena district. At each stop, the two had one shot each of hard liquor, according to Florence. After midnight, Brian and Florence met Meredith Reed, a friend of Florence in the short north. Reed gave them a ride back to the Ugly Tuna Saloon where they had started the night, and joined them there for one last round. While the three were there, Brian separated from his companions. Florence and Reed attempted to find him, repeatedly calling him. They left with other patrons when the bar closed at 2 a.m., waiting outside for Brian. When he, is, when he was not among the departing crowd, they assumed that he had gone back to his apartment without letting them know. Wagner and Brian's father both tried to call him later that weekend, but he didn't answer. On Monday morning, he missed the flight to Miami that he and Wagner had scheduled long before. He was then reported missing to the Columbus police. Police began their search for Brian at the Ugly Tuna Saloon, the bar where he had last been seen. Since the area around South Campus Gateway was somewhat blighted with a high crime rate, the bar had installed security cameras. They reviewed the footage, which showed Brian, Florence, and Reed going up an escalator to the bar's main entrance at 1.15 a.m. Brian was seen outside of the bar around 1.55 a.m., talking briefly with two young women and saying goodbye, then moving off-camera in the direction of the bar, apparently to re-enter. The camera did not record him leaving shortly afterwards when the Ugly Tuna Saloon closed. This was the last known time that Brian was seen. It was possible investigators realized that Brian could have changed his clothes in the bar or put on a hat and kept his head down, hiding his face from the camera. The cameras might also have missed Brian. One panned across the area constantly, and the other was operated manually. He might have also left the building by another route. However, the building's only other exit 
a service door, not generally used by the public, opened at the time onto a construction site that officers believed would have been difficult to walk through while sober, much less intoxicated, as Brian likely was at the time. Since Columbus has the most security cameras of any city in Ohio, more than Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Toledo combined, officers next looked to the footage from other bars to see if cameras there could explain how Brian had left the Ugly Tuna Saloon. However, footage from cameras at three other nearby bars showed no trace of him. The search began to fan out from the, from the Ugly Tuna, with officers sometimes accompanied by police dogs, looking closely in the street, inspecting dumpsters and other waste containers, and asking residents if they had seen Brian. Flyers bearing his picture showing a tattoo on his upper right arm of a stick figure logo from the cover art for the single of Alive by Pearl Jam, one of his favorite bands, and noting a distinctive fleck in one of his irises, was posted widely. Police even persuaded the city of Columbus to let them into the sewer system and search there. No useful information was uncovered. At Brian's apartment on King Avenue, six blocks from the bar, his car was still parked outside. Inside, nothing appeared amiss. After searching miles away from the, from the ugly tuna, in every direction, police began to consider other possibilities besides an accident or foul play. Since Brian's mother had recently died, it was speculated that he had gone away temporarily to grieve in solitude. Yet, his disappearance proved permanent. No evident reasons appeared for him voluntarily disappearing. Those who had seen Brian that evening, including his father, were asked to take lie detector tests. He and Reed passed theirs, as did reportedly all the others, while Florence refused. The two women Brian had last been seen talking to were later identified. They said in 2009, that they had never been asked to take one themselves. Wagner called Brian's phone every evening before going to bed for a long time after his disappearance. Usually it went to voicemail, but one night in September, it actually rang three times. I kept calling it to hear purely because it was one of the best sounds I'd ever heard, even if no one picked up, she wrote on her MySpace page. Singular, Brian's wireless provider said what Wagner heard may have been due to a computer glitch. A ping from the phone was detected at a cell tower in Hillard, 14 miles northwest of Columbus. The police received many tips, none of which resulted in any breakthroughs in the case. At a Pearl Jam concert later that year in Cincinnati, lead singer Eddie Vedder took time between songs to ask for tips in Brian's disappearance, but none of those were useful either. Possible sightings in Michigan, Texas, and even Sweden were investigated. Randy Schaefer, who had recently suffered the death of his wife, continued the search for his son on his own. A psychic that he consulted told him Brian's body was in water near a bridge. Him, Derek, Brian's younger brother, along with some other citizens who had become interested in the case, 
bought waders and spent much of their free time along the shores of the Olentangy River, which flows through Columbus adjacent to the OSU campus, searching in vain for the body near bridges. This possibility also led police to briefly consider the heavily disputed smiley face murder theory. Brian, under this theory, would be the purported serial killer's only victim whose body had not yet been found. Columbus police eventually rejected any connection to the alleged killer in Brian's case, following the lead of most law enforcement agencies, including the FBI that have looked into it. In September 2008, during a heavy windstorm, Randy Schaefer was out in the yard of his Baltimore home clearing debris. A branch blew off from a nearby tree and fatally struck him. Neighbors found his body the next morning and called police. After his obituary ran online, a condolence book was posted. One of the signatures in it said, To Dad, Love Brian, U.S. Virgin Islands. This suggested Brian might have left Columbus for a new life elsewhere. However, upon further investigation, the note was found to have been posted from a computer accessible to the public in Franklin County, and it was determined to be a hoax. Shortly after Randy Schaefer's death, Neil Rosenberg, attorney for Florence, wrote to Don Corbett, a private investigator who has volunteered his time to help the Schaefer family find Brian, regarding his client's ongoing refusal to take a lie detector test. Rosenberg intimated that he had learned that the Columbus police investigating the case believed Brian was alive. If Brian is alive, which is what I'm led to believe after speaking with the detective involved, then it is Brian and not Clint who is causing his family pain and hardship, Rosenberg wrote. Brian should come forward and end this. Florence, he said, did not have anything to hide. He had merely told everything he knew from the beginning and did not see the value of doing so again. Rosenberg's assertions notwithstanding, many of those who were close to Brian Schaefer have criticized Florence for not being forthcoming enough. As soon as the the detective started getting involved, that's when he pretty much had no contact with anybody, recalled Derek. I've always thought he definitely knows something, just won't come forward with it. He believes that it's still possible that Brian is alive, and Florence knows where he might have gone. If Brian did take off somewhere, if that is the case, we just always had a strong feeling that Clint would possibly know that, he said. Wagner also, also thinks that Florence is withholding information but believes that it's likely her former boyfriend is dead and did not run off. I can't imagine that he would have just done that, she said. In 2014, the Columbus police said that they were still receiving at least two tips a month on the case via the local Crime Stoppers hotline, though none had proven useful. The evidence in the case filled four boxes of files. One of the original investigators, Andre Edwards, told Columbus Monthly that after extensive review of the camera footage at the Ugly Tuna from the night Brian disappeared, which was intended to rule out the idea that he could have left in disguise, he could 
say with 100% certainty that Brian did not leave via the escalator. Police say that they have three theories about the case, but decline to discuss them, even generally, with the magazine. In 2019, an image of an alleged American homeless man in Tijuana, Mexico, bearing a resemblance to Schaefer, began circulating online. Columbus News Station 10TV forwarded the image to the detective in charge of Brian's case in 2020. The detective sent the image to the FBI for facial recognition analysis, which ruled him out as the identity of the man. In March 2021, the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation released an age-progressed photo of what Brian might look like at age 42, nearly 15 years after his disappearance. Between Brian's disappearance and his own death, Randy joined the families of other missing adults in Ohio in lobbying the state legislator to pass a bill establishing a statewide protocol for such cases. At the time Brian disappeared, it was left up to individual departments how to handle the cases, and some felt that investigations into their relatives' disappearances had suffered as a result. By the time Randy died, the bill had become law. Hopefully one day, we'll find out the fate of Brian. I think that not knowing is worse than knowing. Because with not knowing, you still have the hope that one day he'll come back home. I just hope that the family gets their peace one day. Our next story comes from YourGhostStories.com. I know that it's been a while since I've included one from here, but I figured since the Brian Schaefer story was a little shorter than usual, we'd hear a story from one of my favorite websites. When I was 17, I opened a door that should have remained closed. I was at the public library and checked out a book about demons. I was always an avid reader, and to me, it was just another horror book. I checked it out for two weeks. I really had no concept of demons. I believed in God, but just not so much in the other end of things. I had the concept of God and angels, and if they were truly in heaven, then nothing bad could be there. They protected us, right? That very concept changed forever. Hello, Crash, Course, and Free Will. I ended up reading the book, and the next thing I know, I started seeing shadows. The dark ones. Some looked like crows, some black cats, and then the smaller humanoid types. There was one, more human, who was taller, dark, and he was everywhere. If I was reading, I could see a shadow leaning over my shoulder as if reading with me. He would also be on the roof hanging down peering into my window. I could see his form blocking out light and hanging there upside down like a crouching bat. He had pointed ears and I will never forget that silhouette against the starry sky watching me. My sister began seeing these things too. We both saw what looked like fighting bolts of blue and white lightning that streaked across darkened rooms at each other. The most amazing occurrence 
was when we were at the movies and the whole theater was a battleground with us being the only ones who could see the lights. In retrospect, I do believe it was good and evil fighting. I think I was more curious and mesmerized than concerned by all of this going on. Until one evening, I was lying across my bed, reading as usual, and I felt a hand touch my foot. Hard pressure on the sole of my foot, grasping. That scared me. Whatever this was could touch me. The end came quickly to this situation. A couple days later, late one Friday night, I was home alone and my mom and sister drove up. In the headlights of the car, my sister saw a huge demon, hairy and tall like a buffalo on its hind legs, and it was running around the house trying to escape the headlights. My mom didn't see it, nor did she or my dad ever see any of these happenings. My sister thought it had been after me, and she was terrified. Her fear was palpable as she told me what she saw. She told me to take care of this and get it the hell out of our home. I was horrified. The very next morning, a Saturday, I found myself home alone, a godsend in a house where Saturday mornings were the optimum time for everyone being home. I cleansed the house, blessed the house, and I got that book the hell out of there. I never saw it again at the library, even though the section of horror I perused was near where I found it. I hoped that it was removed from the shelves and destroyed. Funny thing, I have a feeling it never made it back to the shelves. I have a strong feeling that it was never supposed to be there in the first place. The thought of burning the book never crossed my mind. I just wanted things sent back to hell where they belonged, and all things in my world back to where they had been before. I succeeded in clearing the house of all evil, no more shadows, lights, touches, or seeing anything ever again. The downside is, I will always regret having my sister feel that horror and fear. The upside is that my faith in all that is good was strengthened beyond all that I could have imagined. I know now what's out there, and I will use my belief to send it away every chance that I get. I hold that faith close to this day. These things were getting stronger, more brazen, and I never want to even consider opening any doorway again. I was uninformed, stupid for doing that, and utterly ignorant for bringing that into my home. This all occurred in a two-week period, and I thank God my faith was intact. I was considerably blessed that I realized the problem was growing beyond me, and that I had the strength to send it back. I hope someone learns from this. It's not a game. It is real, and it is awful. I've got one more story for you guys today, and it's from yourghoststories.com, and as always, I'll be reading from the author's perspective. I work part-time in a restaurant near my home. One morning, I was on cleaning duty at this place, which starts at 9 a.m., and I had to clean the whole restaurant. I was told by a girl that works there that the gents' toilets is haunted, so I thought, no big deal, I'm used to this kind of thing. 
I happily go into the men's restroom and I begin to clean the mirrors in the in the toilets. I suddenly hear the toilet door behind me slam against the wall. I turn around and say, please do not do this to me. I just want to clean in here so you can leave me in peace. I went back to the mirrors and suddenly the room got even colder. I turn around a little annoyed and I speak to it again. Stop this now. That is an order. Go stand in the corner. I tell it and I turn back around. Suddenly, all the taps are pressed down and the toilets flush. I sigh and I turn around again and I talk to it. Look, this isn't going to scare me, so behave. As I stand there, a dark shadow appears in the corner of the bathroom, and I stand there watching it, trying to keep calm. I hear this strange hissing noise, and the doors of the toilet start smashing against the wall like something out of a horror film, and I suddenly feel this pressure on my neck. I felt like I couldn't breathe, so I stood there, and I pleaded for it to leave me alone. I asked for whatever forces of light that could protect me to do so, and the thing released its grip and vanished. I calmly walked out of the bathroom, and I started crying in front of my boss. Some people from the restaurant went in there to see if they could see anything, but they couldn't. I got a cup of coffee, and I was sent home soon after. I have left my job, because every time I went into the restaurant, I kept feeling like I was being watched, and I kept feeling tickling sensations around my throat. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I do apologize for the shortness of it, but next week's will be longer. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories, and if you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. And one thing I forgot to mention at the beginning, the official Ohio Unsolved TikTok page is now live. I'm still trying to learn everything and, and how that works. And I've got a couple videos from the very first episode uploaded, but I'm working on maybe changing things up for that as well. Thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and helping me to eventually reach my goal of 500 subscribers. I'm up to 382 the last I checked. And remember, once we hit 500 subscribers, there will be a YouTube exclusive bonus episode, so you don't want to miss that. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support us by joining on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. We had one last week come out during our week off, and it was about the Russian serial killer, Andre Chikatilo. Once again, thank you all for listening. And make sure to keep your doors and windows locked. And stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.